This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's lecture. We're so, so, so honored and、uh, really excited to have. Amy Allison with us. She's the founder of She the People, and I'm going to say more about Amy in just one second.、Um, before I do, I just wanted to share、um, a little bit of a kind of a follow up from our conversation on Monday. I mentioned that while we were in class, workers were tipped. Workers were on strike in New York and Chicago, and I just wanted to share a little bit of news、um, from that strike. Um, so you can just see what happened. Can you see my screen, and can you hear it? Eight-dollar wage gap between black women and white men on the typical city dining floor. The difference largely due to lower tips. The employees say working for sub-minimum wages, even with tips, doesn't guarantee a fair and livable salary. Fair labor. This is the United States, and we're all trying to work on it. We have to pay people for their labor. This is a discussion that we、we'll、continue to have as we're stepping up in the streets and saying, "Hey, wait a minute! I'm not going to work for free." In New York, a law banning sub-minimum wages was passed last year, but service industry employers are only required to pay a portion of the wage if the rest can be made up with tips. So、um, they went on strike yesterday. I mean, on Monday. Sorry, and. Um, about a hundred employers responded by、uh, announcing that they're moving to a full minimum wage, and we're honoring those employers tomorrow. So it's already having some impact.、Um, but this is happening month after month. I just wanted to share real time what's happening in our world. Strikes happen in Chicago and New York on Monday, and then every month more and more cities are being added. So、um, that's one of the context of our world, right? Women of color are. Earning a lot less than everybody else,、um, but they're also going to be one of the most important, powerful forces in this coming election. That is the one of the many kind of paradoxes that is the context of this election. So, we couldn't think, Professor Cohen and I couldn't think of a better person to start us off this semester thinking about what is the context of this particular election. Why is it so different? Why is it so historic? Than Amy Allison and. I want to share another little video of Amy recently on CNN. So let me switch to that、um, and share that with you. So Amy's been on television a lot recently, talking about、uh, the importance of women of color in this election, particularly leading up to a women of color being named、uh, for the first time in U.S. history vice presidential candidate on a major party ticket. So let's watch Amy on CNN. Can you hear this? Sound, 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 sound. To run. Look, we've been organizing. Do you think her presence will galvanize other women to speak up in their communities to run? Look, we've been organizing not only Black women but Asian American and Latina and Indigenous women all over the country.、Uh, the answer, in a word, is yes. 
Uh, there's an historic number of women of color who are running for Senate and Congress as well as down ballot. And uh, Kamala Harris's presence at the top of the ticket is an indication um, and an affirmation of our political power. I have to say, though, for Trump, uh, women of color are his kryptonite. We saw through him uh, when he was running in 2016. We have been uh, the subject of attacks, Latinas and uh, uh, black women. Uh, there's a fancy word for it, misogynoir, which is the specialty that Trump has, the racist and sexist attacks. He's unleashed another wave of birtherism that we saw, this uh, op-ed in, in Newsweek questioning whether Kamala Harris even belongs. The question, you know what? I'm sitting in Oakland, California. She was born in my hometown. She is as American, the American leader that we need right now. And so for women of color, we've seen this playbook. We know how to respond, and we uh, recognize that uh, Trump is really throwing red meat to his supporters, hoping that racism is going to get him out to the polls. But I tell you what, uh, women of color will, will uh, do a lot to face the pandemic, unemployment, and all the problems uh, to cast our vote in historic numbers. And we have to start by pushing back and not tolerating one word of the racist and sexist uh, language that we see being leveled against Kamala Harris and the other women of color who are on the ballot in November. Great. So a um, little bit of background about Amy. She is a dear friend and colleague, but she's also an extraordinary person. Do you who, think oops, her sorry, presence will galvanize um, other women to speak? Who has, sorry. Speak up in their communities. Um, here we go. Uh, who has done so much. Um, over the course of her career. So just wanna tell you a little bit about Amy, a uh, little bit of background. Um, she's the founder and president of She the People, which is a national network elevating the voice and power of women of color. She brings together voters, organizers, and elected leaders in a movement grounded in values of love, justice, belonging, and democracy. In 2018, Ms. Allison was one of the primary architects of the Year of the Women of Color in politics, which really began in 2018, but nobody can deny that this has been one of the most extraordinary years for women of color. Uh, in April 2019, she, conve she convened the first presidential forum for women of color, reaching a quarter of the American population. So a lot of people saw that forum and it, was in, it got a lot of press attention. Um, a democratic innovator and visionary, Ms. Allison leads national efforts to build inclusive multiracial coalitions led by women of color. She leverages media, research, and analysis to increase voter engagement and advocate for racial, economic, and gender justice. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Hill, Essence, Teen Vogue, and Newsweek. In the early 1990s, Ms. Allison earned a rare honorable discharge from the U.S. Army as a conscientious objector and works today to support courageous moral leadership. She has a BA and an MA from Stanford University. She wrote Army of None. She's appeared in hundreds of outlets. You just saw her on CNN, but she's been on MSNBC, The Washington Post, Associated Press, NPR. Her vision and goal and, and like work, life's work right now is building a political home for millions of women of color nationally and especially in the battleground states this year. Um, she was featured in Politico's 2019 Power List. So we are so, so, so lucky to have Amy with us today. Amy, 
I'm seeing 300 people, so let me switch to you. <laughs> Welcome. And we thought we'd let Amy speak for a little while and tell you about her work and what's happening right now, and then switch to uh, kind of a conversation between Amy and I, and then open it up to the class. So welcome, Amy. Good morning, everyone. I'm really honored to join you today. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, for uh, including me and um, um, for really having, centering a, an understanding of the 2020 elections in the amazing, amazing trajectory of women of color stepping fully into our fierce power, just as the country needs us the most. Um, I started She the People as a book, okay, as a book. There had been no uh, book on women of color in American politics, even though we were the fastest growing group of voters, even though we were the best organizers for bringing new people, young people, people of color uh, into voting and engaging, um, we, even though we were frontline on the movements that are capturing the hearts and minds of uh, millions of us, even though we were the main vote behind electing and re-electing Barack Obama, there still hadn't been an acknowledgement of this political force. And so I started writing a book and the book was not about a racial identity. The term women of color is about, it's a, it's a term of political um, solidarity across race that has its, uh, it has its foundation in the political sense from the 70s in 1976, there was the first women's convention. It was the brainchild of Patsy Mink and Bella Abzug and the women who were uh, first in Congress who were able to convince Congress to fund um, an effort to create a women's agenda and to really capture uh, women's political power. The thing is, and you'll probably, you've, you've, I heard it earlier uh, today and you'll, you'll hear it, Race is the most important determinant, not gender, of how people vote. And uh, back in the 70s, uh, the white women who uh, organized this conference, which was in Houston, came up with uh, a policy agenda that looks a lot like what they would call white feminist policy agenda um, for the nation. And a group of black women uh, realized that they had a, what they called a minority plank in that agenda, it was like one page that wasn't did not capture uh, the the deep pain uh, of economic injustice, racial injustice, um, and lack of opportunity and um, uh, white supremacy that uh, Black women faced. And so they created a Black women's agenda, and the Latina, Asian American, and Indigenous women say, "Hey, way we we want to be part of that." So they came up with a term to encapsulate this political view that is both policy and uh, solidarity. And they called themselves women of color and advocated within um, the larger group of white women to adopt this justice-based plank of women of color. And that served as um, really uh, the, the motivation and um, the foundation for the work that I do today. So when I wrote this book, I started interviewing women of color across the country. Meanwhile, because of 2016's election, when I had, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was doing research for all these amazing women of color who were leading these efforts in battleground states 
an understanding that the, the country itself was becoming majority people of color, not only in our state, California, but in places like New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia. These are the swing states right now. These are the, these are the states that are going to determine the results of the uh, 2020 election and the electoral college votes. And I said, look, women of color are a quarter of the electorate in these places. And yet uh, the, the ecosystem, the political, um, it, it, like the business of politics, everyone you see that was a talking head, people who do analysis on uh, voting, voting patterns, uh, people who do polling, exit polling, that understand the, the, the politics, just all of this that helps to shape the public perception, none of that was present in 2016. And in fact, so much so that when the news came out that the majority of white women voted for Trump, there was shock and dismay amongst white women I knew. There was a lack of self-awareness that white people in this country were, uh, including white women, were a conservative force and had been for decades. So how do we have a women's agenda without an analysis on race? We can't. Because women of color in 2016 voted overwhelmingly against Trump. When I said in that clip we were his kryptonite, we saw through him, we knew what he was doing, and we did not buy it, and we were the most reliable, highest turnout group against Trump. So I, instead of the book, which was, you know, would have been uh, wonderful, and I hope to someday write it, I started an organization intended to build the political power and the voice of women of color in the time that the country desperately needed our leadership. In a time in 2016, the term women of color was never used to understand the American voting population, to understand trends. And I set to change it, to tell a new story to the country. And I launched in 2016, nine, day, nine weeks before the midterm election. And I said then, and I said now, that women of color and our turnout, our enthusiastic support, our power on the ground will drive the democratic multiracial coalition. And if, uh, if candidates speak to us, if they engage us, if they, if they prioritize our votes over the traditional swing voter, like the, the, the white woman in the suburbs that Trump keeps talking about, like that, that as not the most valuable Democratic Party voter, but us, you know, then, then we have a chance to win back the White House and the Senate and in, in 2020 but to also create a politics we have never seen. When we told that story, it was very compelling for um, reporters, editors, bookers, producers who'd cover 2016 election and missed, missed and miscalculated uh, how Trump was successful. How did Trump win? What, what are we missing? I said, you're missing women of color. And so, this last journey of the last three years has been establishing in the press and in um, the public consciousness, uh, women of color as a powerful constituency. And now people believe the thing that was impossible for the public to imagine, which was that women of color are the drivers. They are the, this, we, our turnout will determine the, the, the election. We are powerful. And you're talking about a group of people, just like with the restaurant workers and the tipped workers, uh, the professor was talking about, you're talking about women of color who have been suffering long before Trump, the, um, the cruel policies and practices of this country. 
and who hold uphold a deep and abiding vision about the power of democracy, a multiracial democracy, and that women of color uh, with high turnout, particularly in the battleground states that are majority people of color, and those states, again, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and three Midwest states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And because we're such a powerhouse that if we um, increase our voter turnout of women of color, two to four percent in those states, we, we win the Electoral College, we, we win the White House, and we win key Senate states. So my goal has been, um, despite the pandemic, despite the unemployment, the housing crisis that's, that's upon us, uh, and all of the problems, my, our goal is now that we've established um, the power of our um, constituency and that we have changed culture so that we are seen and heard, we have to actually um, have women of color, particularly in those key states strategically, have a, a, a plan to vote, to safely vote, but also have their votes counted. Because on top of everything else, women of color across indigenous, Latina, uh, Asian American and black women are the most targeted for voter suppression. And in those states, uh, there are Republican secretary of states and Republican um, governors who are dedicated to trying to limit or prevent our votes from being counted. So our goal is to reach a million women of color. Our, this the program, our political program has already started and there's so much at stake that um, when we pushed to have Kamala Harris, or a, I should say a woman of color as VP, we started that effort in February when it was clear that two really older white guys were going to be at the top of the ticket. We said, look, we heard from women of color when we did uh, listening sessions that having a woman of color at the top of the ticket is going to deepen enthusiasm when there wasn't. There wasn't deep enthusiasm uh, for Biden. Um, adding Kamala Harris on the ticket as first Asian American, first black uh, woman at the top of the ticket was more than symbolic. It was strategic. And now we have something uh, that can excite and unify people. My overall goal in my political work is not just, is not simply to um, elevate the voice of women of color who are, who have been ignored and sidelined and dismissed and abused in American politics and life. It isn't just that. It is to build a multiracial coalition to transform American democracy. And we are at an inflection point. We have a, basically two choices in my view. One is very clear. If you watched uh, what Trump is saying in Wisconsin, where we have a Trump and the Republican Party justifying terrorist killings of people on the street, and you see more and more of this. So white supremacist, fascist, you know, where, where there is unchecked power and the, 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 the safeguards that have protected our civil and rights and, you know, they're, they're, they go away. <laughs> or we can choose to go the route of the multiracial democracy to make this American democracy live up to its greatest promise. And the group of people who best understand it, who are, who are strongest and who have um, demonstrated, particularly black women, that we are the highest vote turnout and that we are the pro-democracy patriots, that we will knit together a multiracial coalition and go forward. That's where I am putting my belief in. Um, and that's my spark of hope. 
So uh, that's my work, and um, and I, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about any aspect of it that interests you is um, in, um, in your study. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, so much to talk to you about and ask you about. Um, but but let's start with this this particular election. You know, women of color have been playing this role, frankly, for a really long time, as you and I know. What is it about this moment, about this context, about this election? Um, that has finally elevated and helped people understand the importance of women of color. Why is it in this year that women of color have finally made it to the top of the ticket uh, in a year when we've got, you know, some of the most virulent and obvious racism that we've ever seen and sexism? Um, I think a a number of things happened. You know, um, often politics or political power um, when you think about who has power, we, we think about who's in office already. Um, but political power emanates from other places. And part of where politics and power for women of color has come from was literally in the narrative, crafting a narrative about our strength. When I said, like in California, one of four voters are women of color. We are the majority of women, Right. Or if I say uh, we're the, I, I, I reposition which votes matter and how powerful we are. I reject the notion that we should ever be considered minorities. We are not. I reject the notion that a billion and a half dollars that's being raised and spent in a typical presidential year, majority of it goes to trying to, to convince swing voters. I mean, it's still, that's still happening. The governor of, um, the Republican former governor of uh, Ohio had space in the Democratic convention. Why, why would they have a, a, a white guy Republican unless they thought that he was going to attract a particular type of voter? So we're, we have a, a political culture which has undervalued us for so long. But if we tell a different story, which is what the work is about our power, um, we start to... Um, uh, we start to change perception. When I say we hadn't been um, polled or, uh, there, you know, polling and data and surveys, um, lists of, uh, you know, lists of, you know, voters and, and, and who matters, the vote potential, all of that, um, those are the things that we are changing the story about. And I think all that has contributed over time um, to, um, having people understand who women of color voters are and what our potential is. So I, I think for 2020, um, things have gotten so bad for so many people. There's overwhelming fear. There's a, there's been a diminishment and uh, disrespect of, of uh, news media. We don't, who do you trust? And when we ask, who do you trust? Like fundamentally, like, like, who do we trust to get us through here? Who, who, who is actually going to, should, should it be uh, white women who voted for Trump right now? Or should it be the, um, you know, who, who? And when people are asking a question of trust, they have to look at um, things differently. It's really causing a different kind, you know, and in that void, women of color have been a very clear moral, moral f- voice. I mean, as things crumble around us and the, the norms, um, and assumptions that we had about American politics have been violated around us. The clearest, strongest voices have been uh, women of color, not just those who are elected in Congress, but those 
um, those who are leading efforts uh, on the ground, those who are leading movements. Um, it's very clear. And we, um, we are responding to the nation's need for trust in a very powerful way. And I, uh, when you were reading my bio, I was like, you know, part of the reason I started even uh, writing about women of color in a, in a book, you know, in 2015 was because here is a group of people um, that we've never been handed anything, never been given anything. We have so much courage that's demonstrated courage in terms of taking a lead and self-sacrifice, courage in terms of uh, fighting to, to vote and organize despite the difficulties. So I think all of those have contributed together um, to this moment for, for, for women of color, where the constituency and the power met the candidacy at the top of the ticket meets um, our power to uh, determine the results of the 2020 election. Yeah, it's so interesting when you say, as we watch things fall apart, because that is definitely what's happening. Things are falling apart. I had uh, a funder tell me yesterday, um, feels like America is a, is, a, is a dumpster fire right now. <laughs> um, yeah. And so in, moment, in previous moments like that, during economic recessions of the last like 20, 30 years, there, there often is a scapegoating that occurs among you know, certain populations, segments of the white population that elected officials really play into scapegoating of immigrants, scapegoating of people of color, scapegoating of black people in particular that happens during economic recessions. Um, and in the past, when that's happened, I have seen a kind of a retrenchment, frankly, a cowardly retrenchment of the Democratic Party saying, oh, you shouldn't talk about race, race is third rail, gender is third rail. We don't use those terms. We don't talk about those things, particularly not during a recession when there's a tendency to blame each other for the troubles we're facing. And something different happened here where you've got not just a recession, but the worst depression, I think that we've seen since the Great Depression. And at the same time, a national uprising around race, at the same time, a new willingness among white people to talk about race that we haven't really seen in a really long time. Um, and so the, the idea of divide and conquer isn't working as well. <laughs> what do you think um, is different or has changed? I think, that, I think you're absolutely right because the, the concept of a multiracial identity in politics where we, um, it can, it's born of a country that there's, there is no majority and minority. Like we live in California. We, we you know, or those of you who are you know all over the world. If you look at many parts of the the states, it's like not there's no majority. I mean, I'm a black woman. I live in Oakland, but there's no majority of any one group. And you know, one of the most powerful um, things that we have seen in this moment is for people to find common ground in building a multiracial. Uh, solidarity and political power. We have the numbers. We need the language, and we need the uh, the, the justice agenda. When I talk about like uh, economic and racial and gender justice, that's part of a agenda we can all buy into. But but the um, I think in this moment is racial justice, and I think the willingness of people across race to say Black Lives Matter and to organize ourselves and and to join the the call uh, for America to account for its racism, to take a very painful look at um, the ways in which uh, people's lives are destroyed by a system. And we're 
you know, one of the, the one of the most amazing exports, I think, from our hometown has been this ability to to organize a race, have a heart for for your own people and love for your own and also others, and to see that our um, our fate is bound together. And I, you know, when I did the presidential forum last April, you have to understand we had this huge uh, and very diverse. Uh, group of uh, candidates who are running for president in the primary. And I'm not a person that had like big ties to all the big organizations. And I said, but I want to do a forum and I want to do it in the city where the term women of color was born in Houston. Houston is the most diverse city, Harris Co- County, Harris County in the country. Um, majority people of color, obviously, but they didn't, there's something special about this language of solidarity and organizing multiracially that I have to offer to the country as an export from the Bay Area of the way that we've done things. Um, so to have a, a room of 2,000 women of color uh, from all over the country and be able to ask candidates, like, why should women of color vote for you, which is a question no one has ever asked. Those are, those are like really really remarkable things. I think this moment, though, is about us uniting um, under racial justice. And that's something that every race and gender can get behind. Um, And we can find um, common cause in, and we can advocate for one another in our own communities. I I think that's, to me, that's the biggest thing that we've seen move um, in terms of our culture, space in our culture for that. So uh, speaking of racial justice as the, the word of the day, I um, want to talk to you a little bit about Kamala Harris, because um, I know you know, Amy, we have lots of mutual, amazing leader, organizer, leader friends in here in Oakland, your hometown, my hometown, that, um, or where I live now, that are not thrilled about Kamala Harris's track record and her background about her role as an attorney general and a district attorney. Um, so why... Is she perfect? You know, do you think she's a perfect candidate? Um, why did why focus on her and having a woman of color as a vice president? Um, even when I know you've done focus groups with women of color and surveys with women of color across the country, and the thing that they said was most important was actually the progressive values, the progressive policies, um, more so than anything else. So. What is it about having a woman of color who's not perfect, maybe not the most progressive candidate, um, but, but why is that still so important for you? Uh, it's uh, incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Let, let me just, um, w- women of color are held to a completely different standard than white dudes. I'm just gonna say that right now because most people don't understand uh, that Kamala Harris now, right now, as a senator, she has the most progressive, one of the most progressive voting records in the Senate. So who else is in the Senate? Warren, Sanders, uh, you know, the Massachusetts senator that just won re-elect yesterday. I mean, listen, uh, nobody is perfect. Our democracy is never about one person. It isn't. This hero worship and like, the, the thing that um, worshiping celebrity instead that got us into that got us Trump. A democracy is about all of us and about seeing our ourselves reflected in in leadership and our issues both. 
And um, the thing about Kamala Harris, which is important, is uh, to not allow people to hold her to a different standard, you know, than, uh, than a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, not allow that. But also to see how she's showing up now. Um, uh, the Justice and Policing Act that she was a co-sponsor of, the $2,000 a month payments that she's been advocating for, and she was an author of that legislation to help people through these terrible times right now and to offer some uh, financial relief to people who are suffering right now are two examples. Bringing up Breonna Taylor's name on a regular basis, it matters to, it matters to us that she keeps demanding justice for Breonna Taylor. Um, but having said that, um, it isn't a requirement for people to be perfect. Like, I could get in a conversation with any number of you right now, and we'd probably find something that we didn't fully agree on. But does that mean that we stop working and organizing together? It, do, it does not. Do, we, do I think that the movement, uh, black and brown women would have more access and influence with a Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket? Yes. Do I think we have a better chance of being part of transition teams? Uh, we could be more a part of um, uh, the cabinet. Do I think that we would have influence on the first 100 days with Kamala Harris there? Yes. Do I think that um, the democracy rises and sets on one person? No. So um, she, I advocated deeply for a woman of color, and there were several amazing women of color who were being considered, including our uh, Karen Bass, who's a congresswoman down in L.A., um, and, and, and other women, and women, I was a big advocate um, very early on for Stacey Abrams, who I'd, um, I knew before she ran for governor of Georgia and um, know that she carries the agenda. I believe she'll be president someday. And yes, you can quote me. I want Stacey Abrams to be president someday. But right now we have Kamala Harris, which makes a lot of sense. And the response that we got from women and um women of color that on, on the ground who lead, who are like local elected officials in our network, who lead voter registration, who, re, who lead issue-based, you know, like they'll, they lead a climate justice organization or they'll, um, or they uh, call and talk to voters about getting registered, all that um, has been overwhelmingly positive. So uh, she has given us a way to deepen enthusiasm strategically for 2020. She's opened a door and she's also, um, it's never one um, candidate. So the thing that most people aren't aware of, and we've compiled a list to, to, to release out, is that there's an historic number of women of color on the ballot in 2020. There are three women of color running for Senate, including Marquita Bradshaw in Tennessee, who, who raised a fraction of the amount of the establishment Democratic uh, candidate in the primary, and is now a black woman that is a Democratic nominee in Tennessee. It's amazing. Look her up. Um, we have an historic number of women of color who are running for Congress, state ledge, local. So I said today in the Washington Post, I was quoted in the Washington Post today, Kamala Harris has been deployed to talk to black voters, black voters, particularly black women's turnout, not our percentage, because we already demonstrated that we will vote. We, we are the most loyal Democrats. The number, our turnout numbers in places like Michigan where the, the gap is 11,000, in places like um, uh, Arizona where the gap is 70,000, our turnout will determine the results of the statewide elections in battleground states. Texas has the largest population of black people, and Texas used to be written off as a red state. Black voters, along with Latino voters, can close the 3% gap 
and win, uh, win Texas. So to, in today's Washington Post, I comment on the fact that Kamala Harris coming, she went to Howard University. She has deep ties in networks like the AKAs, the uh, Black Stories. She can speak the language of racial solidarity. She knows how to do it because she turned out 40 million, you know, her percentage, a winning percentage of 40 million California voters, of which there is no majority, and you cannot win right now without being able to speak that language statewide. So this is all very powerful. I think the last thing is, her being black and Indian is significant. We have to have a comp. We have to have um, a much more complex way of thinking about racial identity and how we show up in the world as our country's demographics change. And I love it. It is. It's. Um, it's a uh, amazing opening for us up and down ballot and a way for us to again express our political power. <laughs> I gotta say my daughters are black and Indian and they um, it's incredible for them to see somebody that's exactly like them in a vice presidential nominee role. It's, it's unheard of. It's unheard of. So um, it's really amazing. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about voter suppression. You mentioned it early on. Um, you mentioned that women of color are really the target of this um, more than anybody else. Um, and, and can we talk about all kinds of voter suppression from I work three jobs, I don't have the ability to get to the polls to I never got it in the mail because the frickin post office is being shut down to um, to actual voter suppression like I, my name's not on the rolls um, or I voted and my vote's not being counted. How in all of those ways are women of color being targeted and, and how does that impact everybody, not just women of color? Well, I. Uh... Yeah, we, we got we to gotta understand voter suppression as a system. It's not one thing. I watched it up close when I was supporting uh, Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial bid in 2018. Uh, they have many, many, many tricks. First, let me talk about the not obvious things that lead to lower turnout. Um, lack of investment or speaking to voters. Having a Let me just talk, because this is bigger than party, you know, because it's not like, I'm not here to say, oh, yay, Democratic Party. I'm not, that's not me. Um, but the Democratic Party has a long, long tradition of not investing in speaking to voters of color and taking them for granted and spending the bulk of the money on ads to convince moderate white voters or conservative white voters to go their way because those were the voters that uh, were considered most valuable. And that goes everything from the consultants who pull lists of who to call and you know who to mail to to, to you know, what the commercials look like. In 2016, Hillary Clinton had a lot of commercials aimed at other white women who she believed would back her because, hey, I'm one of you. But the thing is that uh, white women, including in California, all over the country, it's the most reliable base when they run for office at any level are women of color. Women of color are most likely to vote for women of any race. So just when we think about how um, voter suppression starts with not investing in voters, but it's also more, it's more than that. Um, part of it is that in states where, um, like Georgia, that have exact match um, requirements that take people off voter rolls, they routinely remove people 
who they say, okay, well, you haven't voted in, in the last two municipal le- elections or the primaries, so you must not be real. We're going to take you off. And like hundreds of thousands of people. In 2016, 700,000 black people were removed from the voting rolls before election day. So you imagine, like, you registered, you didn't vote for some things, you were kind of a three out of five election voter, but you still want to vote for president, and then you go, you show up on election day. Another way voter suppression happens is, um, and we've seen these terrible, terrible scenes in Kentucky in their primary, where um, uh, vote, voting locations have been consolidated. We saw that in Texas and in Arizona. The reason I keep point, pointing out those swing states is that's what we're going to see, is they take, you know, they'll take 15 polling places that are in heavily Democratic, people of color places, and they'll consolidate to one. In the case in Kentucky, the the parking lot was half an hour away and they closed this polling location at five. So there were people with their kids trying to run and they, they were banging on locked doors trying to vote. It's, it's terrible voter suppression. And then of course there's disinformation, um, trying to discourage people from showing up in the first place and making it difficult to be vote by mail. So if you're in Texas, uh, it's a, you, you have to be over 65 with a validated excuse in order to be vote by mail in the middle of a pandemic. If you want to be vote by mail in um, Georgia, you can, but there's six, six steps, including you have to send a uh, copy of your license. Now, who has a, a Xerox? I mean, just like there's multiple, multiple ways that they're preventing people. So our effort has to be in first and foremost um, we're building the first list of women of color voters in the country. They're, when you go in the, in the business of politics, you go to these data firms, and the data firms have so many ways of understanding the white electorate. Who's married? Who's not married? Who's like a, a fundamentalist Christian? Who's not? Who's this? Who's that? But that isn't how they look at women of color. They, don't have, they have hardly any data in any data sets. So we have to buy and compile commercial data and voter roll data and go talk to women of color. Are you on the voter roll right now? Uh, how can you get back on it? How can, you know what I mean? Like educate state by state. Um, and then um, the most important way for us is um, vote by mail. And we heard that from Michelle Obama in the, in the convention. Vote by mail isn't the solution because of all the interference of taking sorting machines that will slow down mail. And I know that um, part of the play is for millions of vote by mail ballots um, to be delayed in the mail and not counted. In California, it won't necessarily, because we're so heavily Democratic, won't necessarily um, determine the electoral college votes ultimately. But in the states with the razor thin margins I've been talking about, it will be, uh, the delay could have a a terrible uh, effect on the results of the election, particularly if CNN and MSNBC and Fox want to call the election the night of the third. So for us, election day starts October 15th for us because we have early vote options and other options and we cannot look at election day as, hey, stand in an eight-hour line because people who have to work or people who have kids, they can't, people, I couldn't, I, I would have a very difficult time being in a line for eight hours uh, to cast a vote. Um, so for us, it's all about banking our votes early and walking in our pa- paper ballots. Um, so the final thing I'll say is 
amongst women of color, particularly black women, like I was raised with this notion that my dad would take me with him before I was eligible to vote, to the voting, and he would say, our people died for this right. So it is a cultural value of, of black women in particular to vote, and we vote in person. So um, we tried a few months ago to say, okay, well, you guys will vote by mail. Now that looks like it's not going to happen. People who have paper ballots will walk them in and drop them into uh, collection boxes. So I think there's going to be a lot of moving parts. Um, when I heard that the RNC, the Republican National Convention, was spending $20 million to hire poll watchers who are basically armed white people who will be standing there while people are in these long lines intimidating people, that scares me to no end because the shooting that we saw on the street that's being justified on Fox News is, um, you know, is, is it, that threat is enough to keep people away um, uh, from uh, the from from voting so it's a it's a lot and i i think we should go forward understanding that like if you look at stacy abrams and um, she started an organization called fair fight her lesson is we need overwhelming turnout we need a decisive victory and we need to make sure that enough people vote to overcome the voter suppression techniques so we have to just have our eyes open we have to plan early and we have to have a plan for everybody in our network and um it's it's a sad state that our our it feels like a, a final defense of um, uh, of the right that people di died fought and died for that was guaranteed from the now defunct Voting Rights Act is now under under question and we just have to we have to we have to organize and turn out understanding that there are people and forces who do not want uh, our vote to be counted. Amy, do you think you could actually tell the story of what happened with Stacey Abrams in 2018, who she was running against, who was kind of controlling that election, uh, what exactly happened in the final hours, and then why, what she's now saying is the lesson for us for 2020? Because I think it's a telling story, a warning for us of what could happen nationally and what we can do about it. Well, St Stacey Abrams, I should just say, um, she's one of the most brilliant leaders and strategists I know. And before she... Um, I, I went down to um, um, one of the most southern counties when she declared her candidacy for governor in the primary. The thing about it is um, black and brown women are more, most of us are Democrats, but they're most likely to be primaried, challenged in a primary. And that happened with Stacey Abrams, where the Democratic Party ran um, a white millionaire moderate woman, also named Stacey, against her in the primary. But the reason is Stacey Abrams is so brilliant was she said, look, um, Georgia is a swing state. We're almost majority people of color. And if you look statewide across small towns, suburban centers, and urban centers, there are upwards of 800,000 eligible unregistered people of color. And so her campaign from the very beginning was predicated on the fact that she could get um, people that hadn't been engaged and inspired um, or spoken to at all, registered and voting. Um, she won a uh, landslide in the, uh, in the primary. She increased Latino, Asian American, and people don't think about the South. They don't have a, there's not, there's something like a, a limitation in terms of who actually lives in the States, but like Asian Americans and Latinos turnout increased six times, 
black turnout increased uh, uh, exponentially. And the turnout and her strategy was always, we're going to get people out, we're going to get people out early. But she was running against the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp. The Secretary of State is the guy who determines the rules and the practices to implement the election. So it's like, it's like if you were playing football, you know, against the, against the person. It's, it's, that's a bad analogy. I'm, I'm bad with sports analogies. Basically, the person who's determining the rules was her competitor in the race. And um, so when organizations would submit uh, registrations that they had collected a people of color across the state, his, he, they would lose, his office would lose them or refuse to put them on the voter rolls. He was routinely taking people off the voter rolls. He was cheating. And at the end of the day, um, the implementation of, the, um, uh, of, of that particular election had a lot of the voter suppression that we had seen where in Fulton County, black voters were standing in line like eight hours, you know, and um, uh, that it was just rampant cheating. And at the end, uh, you know, Brian Kemp, Kemp claimed victory, but Stacey Abrams refused to immediately concede because of the cheating that had happened and realized that even though she had taken Georgia, which had always been in the past election cycles, dismissed as a blue state, it's really controlled by Republicans, and it had been since for 10 years, uh, at least 10 years, no, no Democrat had been elected statewide. She'd taken it from, you know, hey, this is a red state to razor thin 99,000 margin, um, almost to the brink, with, even with voter suppression, of turning the state blue. And she's the reason, her campaign is a reason that <clears throat> Georgia is a swing state right now in the 2020 election. When she never did concede, because when Brian Kemp cheated his way to the governorship, like there was something very important of her uh, both calling it out and fighting the voter suppression. So she founded a group called Fair Fight, which I believe now is addressing in the courts and in practice voter suppression in 20 states. And she's using a lot of her experience in Georgia to inform the strategy and the support that they're doing right now. Um, so that I, I think though, when we think about sort of the, like the lesson there is we know how blatantly they will cheat. We understand that that's going, that is seriously at play in 2020. It's shameless. So uh, we have to, have measures and countermeasures to try to overcome what is a, just a, a, t a terrible system that prevents people from exercising their very, very basic citizenship right, which is to vote. It's so funny because I remember in 2018 being in spaces where Stacy would speak and you'd have a lot of white donors here in California and other places um, who, who just couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that in America, an election was occurring where the person, you know, running the election was running for office, right? That that person running his own election was running for office. And it was kind of this like, no, it's just not true or we're exact. It's this idea, I think, just like there's been, I think, this awakening that a lot of white people and a lot of people of color have very different conceptions of the police. Some of us see police as 
frankly, a terror and a nightmare, and others see, see police as a, as a source of safety and support and protection. In the same way, I think there's two very different concepts of our democracy. I think a lot of white America still fundamentally believes that we live in a very functional democracy. We live in a functional democracy that works. And when you vote, it, it's counted. And anything we're talking about in terms of voter suppression is minor and it's a bit exaggerated. And then there's people of color who've experienced generations of voter suppression um, and who, who've experienced this kind of cheating and this kind of dysfunctional democracy. And so you have two very different perceptions of truly do we have a functional democracy or not. And um, so to me, that's why some of the work that you do, that's not just about working with electeds, but really elevating the work of organizers on the ground who are fighting against, fighting to make it a functional democracy beyond just let's all go vote, let's get everybody to turn out. It's also about the fight to make this a functional democracy and to elevate the fact that it's not. So can you talk about some of that work of kind of the work of organizers and women of color who've been fighting on these issues for a long time and as it relates to the election right now, why is it so important to think about organizing? Yeah, I mean, um, from its very beginning, um, two things. We wanted to make sure she, sure she the people is grounded in the actual work on the ground. So um, the, mo the most excellent, effective organizing pro-democracy work uh, that's being done is being led by women of color, hands down. Um, in Georgia, Stacey Abrams was on the ballot in 2018, but it was Inse Ufat, whose parents came from Nigeria. She's, an, she's like a, a, a attorney and head of the New Georgia Project, who is responsible for heading a statewide effort to register over 200,000 Georgians. It was Inse Ufat. Like she's not famous, that she's, uh, you cannot have a functional democracy, as you said, without having people who are dedicated to fighting for reaching out, registering people, giving people, uh, you know, talking with people about how to vote and vote safely and advocating for the right kinds of leaders and issues to be on the ballot. Um, in uh, Virginia, uh, Tram Nguyen, who's, uh, who came from Vietnam as a refugee, as a little kid, uh, is leading, uh, co-leading Virginia New Majority. Their, their goal is to transform that state, and they have, by uh, focusing on people of color. They have won in the last, you know, it's like year-round. It's not like they, okay, it's election time, they'll come in. If you, they're a year-round organization that registers, and we say engage, talks to people, about the issues, supports candidates that reflect the community. And in the last four years, they have successfully um, activated uh, Virginia's electorate, which is like when she moved there, there were hardly any um, Asian Americans, hardly very few immigrants. And now Virginia, just like the rest of our, <laughs> a lot of many of our states, is so diverse that they, they've really captured the power of, that, of the communities. They have a uh, three statewide seats that are Democratic, and they just won the majority of the their delegate house, which is their uh, state legislature. That's Tram Nguyen. Um, Andrea Mercado is the head of Florida New Majority, and that's another very similar. They have a very similar theory of change, which is to reach out and, and register and engage voters of color. Um, uh, this was the group, um, New Florida Majority, under Andrea's leadership and her all her organizers statewide, that um, 
passed a, a law, successfully organized and passed a law to restore voting rights to the, what they call returning citizens, people who had their, through having a felony on their record, they had their voting rights stripped away. And by doing that, um, they tip the balance of power on behalf of people of color in black and brown communities. Now, the Republicans have tried to, you know, put a poll tax on that and put, you know, challenge it in the courts. But the fact of the matter is New Virginia majority is doing uh, this amazing transformative work. Um, I could go on, like in Texas, it's uh, Crystal Zermeno and Michelle Tramillo in Texas Organizing Project. In Arizona, it's Monse Arenat and uh, One Arizona and all their organizers. What I'm saying to you is, in the places that will determine the future of American, um, like the leadership and the vision going forward and our issues, these are women of color that are working every day really hard with our communities and very effectively. And um, they're the reason why we have a shot at recapturing the White House and the, and the Senate, because they're actually making sure it's one person, one vote. In um, just because our population, so the thing is, just because our population is changing, where the majority of people are people of color, doesn't mean we have political power. It doesn't automatically translate. It doesn't mean our issues or, our, or leaders from our movements get support because there's a system that was set up hundreds of years ago that did not include us. It included white dudes uh, who owned people, who had the power, and the same structures and political systems, just like everything else, has power and influence on our uh, the way that we do politics today. So we have to intentionally um, work with and support the organizers on the ground who are building multiracial democracy from the ground up. And most, when, when, we, were talking, when we were talking to women of color over the last, like two, two months ago, six weeks ago, um, from battleground states, the most exciting stuff is happening at the local level. If you think about the calls to defund the police or calls to racial justice, those are local fights. So the energy isn't necessarily just White House or Senate. It's much more local, and that's where these organizers are getting people involved. If you talk about defunding the police, and uh, the professor and I know in, like in, in, Cal in California, in Oakland, the calls to defund the police had to be championed by someone um, to get rid of the police force in the, in the Oakland schools, which we have a police force. What the hell? Um, and it was, you know, millions of dollars going to that instead of students' needs. You needed a, it was a woman of color who cha championed that. There was organizers in the, that, that, they, that she worked with. And we saw that defunding and ultimately eliminating the police force in Oakland schools, even though there was a national call, it was a local fight. And that what we're going to see in 2020 is that the city council, school board, county seats and state uh, legislative seats are going to determine uh, and, and, and engage us most. Like, for example, in California, we have something on the ballot that would restore uh, affirmative actions at, and it would, it would um, consider race um, in um, uh, contracting and education and things like that. These are big deals and these are not necessarily at the top of the ticket. So I think that's where the organizers on the ground connect what we care about most deeply with what affects our lives most closely. And that gets people engaged in, in the political process. 
sorry, just one last question, then we want to open it up to the class. Amy, I just want you to tell us what's um, giving you hope right now. It just feels like such a turbulent and challenging time. What's giving you hope? What are the bright spots you're seeing leading up to this election? Like, if you look at my background, I spent um, a couple days in this pool because I was getting a little bit too, like, overwhelmingly, I was, I was just like everybody else, feeling that fear and um, hearing a lot of hope, hopelessness and desperation because we're just about 60 days from the election. And um, the battle lines are being drawn, violence is being stoked, uh, people are being attacked. So what gives me hope in this moment is the courageous, the moral clarity and courage of the people that I work with every day. I mean, there's, um, they're standing up against and speaking, um, you know, in defense of, of people who have been marginalized and um, suffer. I mean, they're, the goal of, or the, the voice of women who are doing the hard work is giving me hope because they, there isn't evidence there isn't evidence that for sure will be successful, but people are dedicated to the fight. And um, because now we're building, intentionally building this network, a multiracial community of women of color, we, we can talk to each other more and across states. And what I see is women willing to do um, whatever it takes to vote. And um, because like black women like myself, we, we know because culturally we understood that our people fought and died for the right, that we are willing to do whatever it takes. And this a sense of courage and clarity. We're clear. Um, sense of focus in the last uh, two months leading to election. Sense of who the evil and enemy is. The sense of love and justice that we're promoting, despite the fact um, uh, that people are um, doing everything they can to dismantle um, uh, the protections for, for, for people that we, we have won over the last 50 years. So um, the hope is in the courage of the people and the courage specifically of women, women of color, who have a lot, we have a lot to lose, and yet the system hasn't ever really served us. And we're holding a vision of a politics we haven't seen and our, uh, this vision is like a faith that we believe that uh, we can transform the country and to make it a more, make it a just place where um, everyone belongs and people's basic humanity um, is, is supported and we're served by our government. So uh, despite it all, that's, that's who I am too. <laughs> it's like, I believe in it. It's worth fighting for. And uh, there are thousands and thousands uh, of people who are willing to do whatever, whatever it takes to defend democracy and to make sure that we have our, um, that we can vote and that we fight for the next, the next phase in the country. Thank you so much, Amy. You give me hope and inspiration. Um, Professor Cohen, are you going to moderate questions that have been coming in through chat? Sure, I'll just 
I'll start briefly with some really good, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you to both of you. Let's keep this going. Um, I want to turn this, uh, ask uh, in particular, Amin uh, El-Moznain, who has a, a, a terrific question that I invite her to ask, please. Um, so first of all, thank you for coming and best of luck to next week's speaker because you set the bar really high. Um, my question was, um, you mentioned kind of the intersection between, you know, race and gender, but between different you know, racial minority groups, how do we ensure that there's continued solidarity, especially as their lived experiences kind of begin to diverge, um, especially on like a class level? Um, and I guess the example I'm thinking of specifically, and you're seeing it with the Prop 16 campaign, how stuff like affirmative action gets weaponized to pit people against each other, which doesn't really allow for any growth on, you know, the things that connect everybody. I love the question because it really points to the greatest need um, and the reason I do my work actually is to create this language of solidarity and to encourage uh, people across our spectrum, people of color to find common ground um, uh, and uh, move forward together. That doesn't mean though, we're going to have a hundred percent of the people. When I saw Nikki Haley on the stage, basically repudiating black lives matter and black people's lived experience and evidence that black people being murdered by police with impunity, she dismisses that. And I, you see that? Okay. She's a woman of color. I don't think she would call herself a woman of color, but okay. She's a Brown woman who said that thing. Um, so we're not going to get a hundred percent of the people. I don't know if that's the goal. The goal is for us though, to create um, a coalition of sh with shared values. It's really deeper than a policy platform. It's our values. And this is an opportunity for us to, to you know, you know, tr Trump, um, this is not just Trump. I mean, I don't think Trump couldn't exist without a, a, a culture that divides and conquers. But like the professor was saying earlier, this divide and conquer uh, strategy can be defeated with solidarity. And um, part of what needs to happen right now is to uplift people who, who are fluent in the language of solidarity. So in the Prop 16 example you gave, and I'm on the, I'm on the committee, so I, just, I can say, because you have, uh, in particular, Chinese-American uh, Chinese communities like in, um, in Seattle and in other places that have organized kind of like Tea Party, kind of like the right-wing anti-affirmative action like group, um, the best way to, def to kind of to lead a multiracial coalition is to is to center the voices of Chinese American uh, folks who believe in a justice agenda, believe in racial justice. There's a lot. I mean, what's really interesting was um, the assumption was Asian Americans were somehow conservative, but that's not that is not true. Asian American women um, are the second most progressive voting bloc fastest growing voting block in the country. And um, we need to hear a lot more from uh, Asian Americans, for example, who speak the language of multiracial solidarity, that see themselves in an array. They see themselves connected to both the traditions and the, the aspirations and the communities, the other communities um, uh, that, they, that it's possible to like, organize with and, and win elections with. So I think you're pointing to um, perhaps our biggest need. I mean, maybe like in this class, there's going to be someone who like, like helps to create 
um, much more of this uh, elevating um, stories, creating like a living, living archive of examples of solidarity that we can use to inspire and show people how it's done. I think um, because half of my family is white, I'm a black woman with a white family, and that's a racial complexity that people are just going to have to deal with and get get their wrap their minds around. But on the white side of my family, if you ask like my mom or like like what percentage of white women or white people, white women, I'll start with, are racial justice advocates, she would like I guess ten percent. She guesses two percent. So there is so much that we need to do in terms of elevating white people who speak the language of racial solidarity and people of color. Um, and I think uh, by doing that, we knit the connections between the communities that we need in order to have political power. That's to me the next, that's, that's, that is actually the front, that's the leading edge of what we need to do in order to solidify multiracial democracy that has political structures based in white supremacy that still exist right now. And you have the evil, the evil genius of white supremacy to try to bring in certain groups. Oh, you're from Korea. Okay. You can, you, you get in. Oh, you're from, no, oh, you're from this, like kind of allowing and expanding who's considered honorary. And that's how white supremacy has worked in order to divide and conquer. So we, uh, we need to really be fluent um, and powerful in, in, um, uh, undercutting that power, diffusing the power of white supremacy over our politics. Great. Um, let's turn to uh, Avni Prasad. Hi. Uh, thank you so much, Amy, for coming to talk to us. Um, I appreciate this conversation in your words um, in a lot of ways, and it's very powerful. Uh, my question is, earlier you mentioned... Uh, Kamala's at the top of the ticket is more than symbolic, it's strategic. Um, is there a concern with this being kind of considered a strategy to get more voters that may in fact lose sight of the important question, which is not how do we get um, women of color voters, but if we are pandering their votes, uh, how are we, um, what will we do for the women of color community? Um, and maybe like a example of this as a strategy in another way is at the RNC, I remember Trump ran an ad where he was talking about um, how he appointed more women than any other presidential candidate. And true or not, um, it was a strategy as a way of kind of getting uh, women voters. Um, and there's like this sense of maybe taking these votes for granted by saying these things rather than earning them. Uh, and so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and how exactly we'd go about making sure that we're not losing sight um, of this focus of what we're actually gonna do for that community. Yeah, because I appreciate your question. I mean, for me, what's behind that question is, hey, we, we are now being seen and heard for the first time, really, um, in a presidential. Nobody talked about women of color in 2016. It was not a thing right? So now we are, and we don't want to be pandered to or taken for granted. And I say yes to that. That's why I started to the people. 100% yes. It is not pandering to put someone at the top of the ticket when they're speaking to our issues. That's not pandering. I always thought that the biggest risk 
when we talk about, like when I talk about women of color, was to do it in a way that was like essentialist. When you have someone like Nikki Haley running around or Diamond and Silk or whatever, those crazy, crazy people that don't, that, that really are in service to a white supremacist agenda, right? I, I, okay, it's not going to be enough for us to have an essentialist argument. You're a woman of color, right? Therefore, you're a good leader. That's not, that has never really been the whole point. The point is to um, empower the million of it. There's 38 million women of color voters. We're all over the place. We're a majority of women in so many states. And to make sure that what we want, are the, the politics and the vision we want um, are realized. And in, in, in putting, having Kamala Harris on the top of the ticket is, uh, is, is, an, is, an, is incredible because we now have see ourselves as women of color in all the complexity of our identity that we could lead the country. Lead the country. And so um, I think the, a lot needs to happen. It's, like, it's, not like, it's not like that was the end. Okay, we're done. But when I say that it was important for black women and women of color who delivered the election or re-election of Barack Obama got, didn't get that credit for that, okay? <laughs> but we did. Um, and that was the last Democrat elected. It was because he could, he could inspire multiracial democracy, multiracial coalitions. Like, that's very important. When I say it's strategic, it's because you've got to be able to, um, despite all the challenges, get black and brown voters to the polls. They got to vote. They got to vote. And they got to see a reason to vote. And for the women um, in our circle, there's a, now there's a reason. There's a reason to vote. Um, because Biden didn't inspire a ton of enthusiasm. He didn't. Um, and there was more enthusiasm for other people who ran in the primary. But with Kamala Harris, there, there is, a, there, we, we've seen, we've just seen a deepening enthusiasm, which is really great. In those states that we're focused on, they have uh, key Senate races, like uh, Mark Kelly is running for um, Senate in uh, Arizona. Mark Kelly cannot be elected without Latinas. He can't. So making us powerful, ma making us visible, our power visible as a constituency makes the politicians and the candidates have to listen to us or, you know, or not to their own detriment. And it gives us more influence. It's not everything, but it's a good step. I don't think we should take our eyes off of uh, continuing to push our agenda of um, racial and economic and gender justice. We should continue to do that, clarify that. Um, but it gives a new shape to what being accountable is. When Obama took office, people were like, oh, I have access. I can go to the White House or attend the meeting. So therefore, but th that's not enough. It's not enough. We have to continue an inside-outside strategy where we look at our elected officials in this democracy as just being part, just part of a solution. They're not the whole thing. Um, and that's why I have this, uh, you know, that's why I'm focusing a lot now on down-ballot uh, women of color because that's that where I think most of our, the issues you're talking about probably, will be fought, uh, fought and resolved at the local level. But I really appreciate the question. This is, this is the question. <laughs> these, are, these are the things we need people in this class to like to tackle um, because we're just, we're just getting started. We need, we, need, we need much, much more of that kind of like honest questioning, rejection of essentialist thinking, 
Um, and, uh, uh, you know, like, oh, if it's a, you know, a black leader, they're def- definitely going to hold our issues. No, 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 no. We're asking for something more than that and uh, continue to do that because that's, that's where I think we're, we need to go as a country. Can I just add to that, Amy, um, to second what you're saying and just give a concrete example. As you all know, I represent a constituency of 13.6 million restaurant workers who have a voter turnout rate of 12%. That's, they voted at 12% in the past. And now they're thrilled and excited to vote because, yes, there's a woman of color, but also because um, Biden-Harris has endorsed a full minimum wage, moving from a 2 or $3 wage to a $15 wage with tips on top. So there's a lot more enthusiasm about, I could actually go vote myself a raise. Now, it, <laughs> if that were it, if they're like, oh, we're going to go vote, and then the Biden-Harris team didn't deliver you can bet your bottom barrel that a lot of those people may never vote again. There'll be disillusioned. There'll be, and so it's, it's incumbent upon us as organizers and fighters and, and the workers to not see Harris at the top of the ticket or, or any election as the, an end, but a beginning because it, it cannot be about getting people into office. It has to be about getting people into office who then we push and hold accountable and organize around to actually deliver on the things that we need. And so to your question about, you know, is it, is it just about getting somebody in office or is it about actually delivering for the women of color whose votes we want? It's much more about delivering, but having people who we can move to deliver is so critical. So Totally, totally. And I just wanted to say something just to like, just put a fine point on what the professor just said, which is the idea of a minimum wage raising the minimum wage nationally started in Seattle was championed by a socialist city council woman, Kashama Swant. She's not famous, but she, she advocated for and was behind raising uh, minimum wage in Seattle. She inspired uh, students and um, low wage workers in, in San Jose, then San Francisco, then it went national. And it is, a lot of these minimum wage, um, uh, you know, raising to 15 was, was fought furiously. It excluded tip workers, it excluded classes of people. Um, but, but what's happened is it's moved from, hey, here's this woman of color, socialist city council person advocating for this thing, to Biden-Harris putting it in the Democratic, that's a, that's a part of their plan, and they're including tip workers. She did that work in 2014. The country owes her a debt of gratitude. And she is not, she is not somebody where people, she's not like a household name, but I know her. I talked to her. I was like, these are the heroes who take these ideas and they push and push and inspire. And then, um, and then so much more is possible. So, um, you know, that I, I, I think, you know, just, just, underscoring how uh, how powerful that movement can be in just a few years. Great. Um, let's turn to Vivek. You want to ask your question? Oh, hi. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ms. Allison, for this conversation. It's so amazing to see people fighting for a more inclusive democracy. It makes me so happy. But <laughs> I was just curious about um, listening sessions that were mentioned previously because um, you, uh, you previously talked about, like, uh, I just want to know, like, on an individual level, like, how did your organization understand what women of color wanted in the electorate? Like, how did those listening sessions work? And, like, what questions were asked? 
Um, uh, well, we did, we, we've done polling, we've done official polling, you know, where there's a whole, you know, you work with a pollster and you buy a list and things like that. We've done that. We did it in the state of Nevada to find out top issues before the Nevada uh, primary, which was the first majority people of color state. I feel like our primary process should not start in Iowa, New Hampshire, because uh, mostly white electorates don't reflect the Democratic Party. But so we did that in um, in uh, in Nevada. We've done informal surveys. Um, that's how we found out that we said, uh, look, which woman of color should be a VP when it was clear that it was Sanders and Biden? Which woman of color should be VP? And then all the names who had been mentioned, we asked. And a thousand women came back, Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris, that's who we want. So uh, we do that. But in the listening sessions, it was invite only. Every woman was like, we had the vice mayor of Phoenix, right? This is a local elected official. Or we had um, state, le- state legislators from, um, from Virginia. These are battle, we picked battleground state women who were local elected officials, political strategists. These are people who work... Um, there's a whole ecosystem of type of influential political people, or they head these kind of organizations I was mentioning, the voter engagement groups, or they're advocates for, um, uh, you know, like uh, a whole number of a whole number of, of issues, um, economic justice and other kinds of things. We invited them into. Um, we did three different listening sessions. Um, I facilitated along with one of my advisors, a woman named Noni, who's um, really senior in terms of holding these kind of conversations. They were open-ended um, questions. So we would, so, and it was Zoom, so it was kind of weird. Just like here, it's like, it probably would be better to get people in person, you know, but what was really important is that we had my team behind the scenes taking notes. We told everyone this is a, um, this is off the record conversation where we want people to be honest. And we would ask questions like, do you see yourself in the Biden campaign? Like what, uh, what, you know, uh, how we would ask a bunch of open-ended questions like, um, are your issues, the issues that you care about uh, being discussed by the Biden campaign? And then we, you know, people would say what they've said. And then we interjected with, with, three sessions of like um, asking specific yes or no questions in a survey through Zoom. So uh, we did three of these. And um, when you have a group of 20 battleground state women um, and they tell you things like in the listening session, like they, you know, Biden campaign hasn't been in touch in a battleground state with women of color who, you know, who lead, who lead the top black women engagement group in the state. Like, how is that possible? And so um, we compiled all the results, all the trends. Um, we, we discovered that at that point during the listening session, majority of women wanted to see a woman of color on the top of the ticket. We still did. And then we did a USA Today. Someone can Google it and share it. But um, we worked with USA Today to tell that story that there's room to grow. And USA Today did a long story about the results of the listening sessions. And it was a calling in of the Biden campaign. Like, we, we are powerful and you must engage us because we want to win. 
And so that was the, the listening session and that strategy. So I think just in general, um, we don't have and we need a lot more data about women of color. There's been a Center for American Progress and I think it's called the Asian American Political Institute in the last year have done um, research on turnout. Like for example, um, women of colors turnout in 2018 jumped 37% over the last midterm. And we were the reason that the house won the majority. So it's women of color. You have to thank women of color for that. So we have to be able to have a lot more data at our disposal um, as well as like listening session, like just having people talk and we're start, we're doing much, much more of that as part of um, really valuing and paying attention to what women of color are thinking across our, across our diversity and you know, regionally. Great. Um, thank you for that. Let's turn to Allison Gracia, please. Allison, are you there? Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, Hi. So my question was, um, the theme I feel like of this conversation was about solidarity and bringing women of color um, to the forefront in politics and their power in politics. What I feel like is that um, falling in the cracks of that are trans women, especially trans women of color. And um, when you say that people want to see themselves on the ticket and Kamala Harris brings that sort of... um, representation. Uh, I feel like that really leaves out trans women of color, especially when looking at Kamala's track record as a DA, there was a lot of violence that she inflicted on um, these women as her time as her time there. So where is the accountability of that? And also like how do we can how do we make sure that trans women are being included in these conversations? And um, yeah, just kind of how how do we not repeat the history of like when white women had their convention um, and it took um, black women and women of color to like say like, no, we have a voice too. And then they had to break off and make their own. How do we make sure that doesn't happen again with now trans women of color having to kind of break off and um, instead of being included um, at the get-go? I appreciate the question. Um, From the very beginning of our organizing, uh, trans women have been, um, integral in, in she the people, trans women as women of color, because trans women of color have faced, faced the same uh, uh, challenges, have shown incredible moral courage and leadership in this moment. And it's important that um, trans women have, uh, are, are visible in our movement. We, um, we listed 20, we had this list 20 for 2020, where in December, I worked with Elle magazine to highlight 20, 20 women of color to watch. Uh, and I can send the, the link. There's 20 women of color to watch for, for the 2020 elections. And Amara Jones was one of those uh, women. Amara Jones is a founder of TransLash and is both doing telling stories of trans women, trans women of color, and also organizing um, kind of a political home for trans women of color and um, getting voter education and voter information out there. And I was recently on TransLash and Amara said to me, uh, Amy, uh, you are one of the only national, like the only national organization that I, I know of that explicitly included trans women from the beginning. We had 
uh, women on stage, we included, um, it's not about like diversity. That's not what it is, is that trans women are holding extremely, trans women of color are holding extremely powerful political um, uh, voice right now. So everything you're saying, I, um, I agree and um, is part of the movement and uplifting as part of uh, what women of color have to be um, uh, perceived as. And by the way, I always look for and, you know, making sure that we're, we're looking for the young woman. We're looking for the Muslim woman with the hijab, visibly Muslim woman. We're looking for indigenous women. Um, we're looking for South Asian women. We're looking for like Pacific Islander women. We got to have a table where everyone's there. And um, I think that's been the challenge with like, I'll talk to like people who are like, have this diversity and inclusion frame of mind. <laughs> that's, that's not what it is. It's about having the voice really embedded in our voice. So having, having said that, um, you know, I think for all these candidates who, and Kamala Harris included, she was an early advocate for gay marriage in California, and there was a big fight there, but her record isn't perfect. And I think she's evolved like, like other people evolved from 2010 or 2011 till, till now. I think we gotta, we gotta continue pushing to make sure that trans women are, our voices are up, held, uplifted, particularly trans women of color who are suffering such uh, terrible violence and um, have an important leadership role to play. I was going to mention, though, there was um, uh, a candidate who's going to be running um, in the New York election. I just want to tell you about this candidate, um, Elisa Crespo, trans Latinx woman, woman who's running for a seat in New York City Council to represent the Bronx would be the first trans person to hold a political office in the city's history and is the education liaison in the office of the Bronx Borough President. Elisa launched her race last year and her election is going to be in 2021. Why am I telling you this? Because we're, I'm very interested in supporting um, our emerging leadership. So it's not like Elisa's just, just trans leader, just Latinx, just in New York, but all those things where we need to um, uplift and support candidates who are coming with an agenda um, in leadership. So, Great. Uh, thank you. So there, there have been, a, we want to ask two questions. I'm, I will ask the last one just out of consensus on what's emerging on the chat, but I do want to turn uh, to someone in a moment. But one of the major questions that I, I believe this question will address is that the, the general lack of enthusiasm amongst particularly young people and young people of color for the ticket as it is. There, we know there are that representation of Kamala Harris in particular is very important, but there are real limitations to the politics of representation. And some of the, the kind of larger questions about how do you attract young people to vote for essentially you know, the architect of the 1994 crime bill that led to racialized mass incarceration and a district attorney in uh, um, San Francisco who contributed to that mightily. There's real, I mean, this is the question that, that the, the young people in this room are seem to be very, very concerned about. Um, and I would say to this also that Joe Biden has just announced that he's going to spend $45 million running a law and order campaign ad series in which he's going to denounce rioters and looters and try and play on Trump's turf, which, if you ask me, is 
a losing strategy. Um, so uh, my, these are, I, I think, you know, I'm going to, I I'm sort of preface this question, but I want to hear Daniel ask this. So we're, we got to the hard, we're getting to the hard part here. <laughs> so uh, Daniel, Najera, do you want to please go ahead and address your question in, in addition to or beyond what I just presented? Yeah. Um, so uh, first I'd like to say um, thank you, Amy, for being here. Um, but my question is um, how can we get like the Biden and Harris campaign to start consolidating um, progressives or the left um, and women of color and new or young voters within the Democratic Party rather than their focus right now on white moderate voters who might have voted for Trump in 2016. I watched the DNC convention, um, I think two weeks ago, and that was primarily the focus of that convention. Um, and like Professor um, Cohen said, there's a very like lack of enthusiasm for their campaign. So what are your thoughts on that? It's such a good question. Um, the the I, I want to say the question is like a, like a very, very important one. Because the last three years, I, I spent a lot of time in this class telling you how much we have changed the culture. We've moved the culture to acknowledge the, the power and importance of women of color in particular as voters and as organizers. But the political system itself has not fully moved. Remember I was saying a billion and a half dollars will be raised and spent over the course of this election cycle. And in 2016, the vast majority of it was spent chasing after moderate white voters, as you point out. Um, that We have not fully exercised that from our the practices and the political, um, the business of politics to the detriment of the Biden-Harris ticket. To the detriment of the Biden-Harris ticket. I mean, the legitimate question you raise about the lack of enthusiasm is something that I heard and something that Kamala Harris helps us do. I mean, we live in, we, you know, we go to, you go to school in the Bay Area. If you're in the Bay Area, we have a certain sensibility. You work in Detroit or Philly or Houston or Dallas or Miami. It's not exactly all the same. But what we heard was that uh, Kamala Harris on the ticket helped to deepen enthusiasm to engage the most critical voters, black and brown voters, uh, particularly women. But I think, though, um, in terms of young voters, in terms of spending all this money on law and order, in terms of going on Trump's turf, those aren't, those aren't strategies that will bring people in or in enthusiasm. But your, your question was, how can the campaign um, bring together a, a progressive coalition? I'm not sure we should... I'm not sure that that's going to be the, the most powerful way for us to think about the next 60 days. I think uh, I have personally been in meetings on calls with uh, the campaign that engage key turnout voters, women of color voters. It's um, being able to leverage that, but also see that the power of the organizers who are on the ground on the local campaigns are kind of where it's at. So um, I agree with your concern. I, you know, in the, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, having um, Biden call for 300 million additional money for police, that's, I couldn't even believe it. it, was so tone deaf. He got a lot of pushback for that. And I think we have to continue being vocal. So just as the professor was saying, you know, the Biden-Harris adopted, like um, the, the campaign adopted $15 minimum raise, uh, 
you know, we still have a lot, we have a lot of uh, places that we need to go politically in terms of um, adopting a politics going to inspire. But remember, let's just, just think back. Because I don't know how old you were when um, Obama was elected first. Obama was, I knew then, he's a very exciting, charismatic leader. He has a lot of respect. He's great in so many ways. But his politics weren't all progressive. Let's be honest about that. Bernie Sanders, who, who won, you know, was California, was very popular in California. When I brought Bernie Sanders in front of a group of women of color, it's very unpopular. He doesn't, didn't know how to speak about racial justice. And so we have to bring those things together in the new generation of leadership, both the uh, justice vision and ability to speak to a multiracial, uh, multigender audience. And um, I'm not saying we're there yet. I, I, think, I think just even asking the question suggests that we have a, a, a group of leaders. We have a deep bench of leadership that we need to find, elevate, support, and get elected so that they can actually um, be our voice. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think these are good, is a good answer. I, I, I do, looking at the Biden campaign right now, they, they seem to be making absolutely all of the same mistakes that Hillary made last year in terms of fighting largely for you know, white women, suburban moderates in, and, and trying to tack to the middle to try and pull some fraction, fraction of Republicans to their side. And by all accounts, at this point, it's not necessarily working. They didn't make all this. With all due respect, they did not make all the same mistakes. Hillary okay. picked a white guy yeah. as her running mate and an all-white ticket. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you that that was a fatal mistake for her campaign because percentage wise women of color, black women would turn out for, for her, but numbers wise, she dampened enthusiasm. People weren't, you know, why would I vote for that? So at least we don't have that mistake. They're making other mistakes, but not that mistake. And that point is well-made and well-taken. You're right. I mean, Tim Kaine added exactly nothing to Hillary's campaign. Zero. So this, this I, I agree with you on that, and that point is well taken. Thank you for that. Um, just as a consensus, one of the questions that has come up in a way to sort of end on um, a, a sort of movement-oriented note, what a lot of the students are asking is, what can we do about voter suppression? What can we as individuals, as students do to try and push back against this problem? And I, let me just ha- invite you to have this be this sort of last question and offer you to sort of, um, it, you know, it, uh, and if you can offer some sort of... Um, uh, answer to that, to wh- what we can do about this and, ma- and find a way to end it for us. Thank you. Okay, three things. Three things. Um, first, I want to stay in touch with you. I do this because I believe that your generation is going to make real the wildest dreams of ancestors in terms of taking our country forward. So go to shethepeople.org, um, sign up on our list, follow us on Twitter. That's my ask. You follow me on Twitter if you want, at Amy Allison, too. Um, let's stay in touch because it's the beginning of a conversation I want to keep having. But I'm 50. I'm at a certain point of the work, and I want to help to encourage and uplift uh, the questions and the work that you're doing. Second thing, uh, Barbara Lee, who's the congresswoman, um, our con- the congresswoman at Cal and, and my congresswoman in, in Oakland, is running the, uh, the coordinated campaign to text and call into battleground states. 
I highly, highly recommend that you sign up for a shift or two at least and um, communicate with and make sure that people vote in the states that are going to make the difference in November. And because uh, the organizers are not really, we're not really going door to door, we're not holding big events. That's, that's what I did in 2016. I'm not doing it now. Uh, texting is actually really powerful and you can contribute a lot and you can focus. And Barbara Lee's lists focus on people of color. So um, you can go to um, Barbara Lee's campaign site and sign up. Uh, and then um, the third thing is, we have a lot of important issues on the ballot in California. If you are registered here, you have family here, please get everyone that you know to vote. And um, our um, our paper ba- our ballot, our early voting starts four weeks before election day. So the first week of, so we're just four weeks away from now. Um, so affirmative action, justice is on the ballot. Um, taxation is on the ballot. There's a lot of very important state issues And I really encourage you to make sure that everyone in your world uh, absolutely votes and votes early. And that's my request. I I just really really thank you very, very much for uh, having me on, listening to me opine about the work and giving me an opportunity to get some reflection um, just, you know, right in advance of the most important election of our lives. Quickly, can we get everybody to unmute themselves and offer Amy a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. 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 Thank